Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift. This is Ian. Much criticism has been levelled at Google girl Greta Thunberg following her address to the United Nations. She has been cast as puppet of climate activists. Scientists addressing climate change have abandoned attempts to persuade people and governments about this science, knowing that their efforts at truth to power are being ignored. No one seriously doubts that human activity is contributing to climate change, which will adversely impact life on Earth. What Greta Thunberg's critics believe, probably wrongly, is that wealth and power will permit them to avoid those adverse impacts. They care nothing for the suffering of others. Is it any wonder that Thunberg does not attempt to address the facts of climate change, but resorts to oratory and rhetorical devices, even some hyperbole and invective to make her point? Lincoln's four score and seven years ago, Churchill's We Will Fight Them on the Beaches and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speeches are revered as powerful calls to the respective societies to address the serious challenges before them. Are the same oratorical devices to be denied to a member of the generation which will bear the burden of climate change? Today's show is about people of that generation and others who are taking up the fight against the corporate interests of power. We will talk to Andy, who is up at the the camp, which is trying to stop the coal from being transported by Adani to the Abbott Point coal terminal. And he'll be talking about lock-on devices and about recent legislation that has been used to outlaw them. So let's go to Bree Collins, who had this to say about the legal situation confronting demonstrators. Can you please introduce yourself? My name is Brianna Collins and I am from a volunteer-run organisation called Action Ready. Um, We are three undergraduate law students and we aim to improve the legal literacy of activists and protect protesters' rights in Brisbane and the broader Queensland space. Can you explain why nonviolent direct action is so important at this time? Well, nonviolent direct action is arguably more important now than it has been ever. I mean, we are living in a climate crisis. It's very apparent that the catastrophe is already here and the most marginalised communities are already feeling the impacts. And at the same time, our governments aren't listening. And the Australian government is a notorious example of that where we are still the world's largest coal exporter. We're becoming the world's largest LNG exporter. Um, Our Prime Minister refused to show up at the UN Climate Summit recently. And of course, this is causing people to feel desperate. 
and to turn to traditional forms of activism which have historically been proven to be very successful in achieving change. How do current laws inhibit democratic rights? For example, the rights to assembly, there are limitations placed on that and how do they inhibit what um, climate activists do? We already have significant limitations to the rights to peaceful assembly. I think a big issue is that we don't have a national bill of human rights to make sure that we've enshrined the rights under the um, International Covenant, Covenant of Civil Rights. Uh, so it's clear that our human rights and our rights to engage in protest aren't strong enough in Australia as it is, and these new laws are just creating more issues in that area as well. We're also seeing a, I think, a massive sweep across the country um, of laws being introduced that are aimed at inhibiting protesters' rights, not just in Queensland. Like the Right to Farm Bill in New South Wales and federal agricultural amendment laws are also aimed at targeting protesters who are engaged in trespassing for social causes with higher and stronger penalties all the time. And so what we think is that if a protester is engaging in breaking the law, of course that is going to result in penalties, but there shouldn't be specialised penalties because that person is engaging in breaking the law for a social reason and for a cause of civil disobedience. As a law student, you would understand that laws are often they are interpreted in different ways and the police force doesn't interpret existing laws in um, often quite draconian ways. For example, when you apply to have a, a rally or an event in Brisbane CBD, the police seem to think that what you're actually applying for is a permit to be given from them to the rally or to the event. When you, but when you look at the, um, the Peaceful Assemblies Act of 1992, all that act is really requiring of the organisers is the importance of notifying the police and the other relevant authorities that you're going to conduct a rally. And then it's up to the police, if they disagree, it's up to them to go to the courts and to oppose that. So, but they, they don't interpret it that way. They see it as being, um, you know, you're just applying for their permission to do something. Mm. Do you agree with that analysis that I've just made? Yeah, I think there's a massive issue in the fact that a lot of protesters aren't necessarily aware of all of their rights. And the Peaceful Assemblies Act does allow you to have significant access to peaceful assembly without having to resort to permits, um, without having to consult with police for that. And that is one of our fundamental human rights as well. And so I'm of the opinion that we need to try and increase the legal literacy of protesters so that we are informed of our rights, because you're absolutely right. Police will not always tell you what your rights are. They will not always be open and candid about what access you have to services under the law. So it's really important that we as activists and we as protesters know those things so that we can then confront police with that information and they can't pull the wool over our eyes in these instances. Recently, I was an organiser of a, a small rally in Brisbane Square. It, you know, I was required to notify the Brisbane City Council that we were going to be in that, in that space. And they said, OK, that's all right. But what they failed to tell me was that they were, there was a market, a commercial market going on at the same time. So when we arrived there, in our numbers, you know, 100, 
150 people, there was no space for us. And we, were, we got lucky because the sergeant of police on duty, thinking it was just going to be a small rally, only got a few police along to assist. Now, we needed his assistance because we wanted to have a march and for him to block off the streets. But mm. uh, we, it was left to his discretion to get around the fact that we had nowhere to rally. And, and in fact, he made it possible for us to conduct a rally by allowing us on the footpath, which is technically part of the carriageway. But it was actually mm. council that had prevented us from really conducting the rally in the way in which we, you know, saw fit. Do you have any comments on that, the way different authorities are used to uh, inhibit the, uh, the process of, of, you know, exercising your democratic rights? Well, I think there's more and more evidence today that police aren't actually doing what they're supposed to do, which is protect the citizens. And, well, at least that's part of what they're supposed to do. Instead, police are often actually enforcing the wishes of the corporations as opposed to the people. And I think that becomes really apparent, especially when we're looking at things like protesting and protesters' rights. And there have been several examples of that recently, um, up north as well with the frontline action protests against the Adani mine uh, when police issued bail conditions upon the uh, journalist, the French journalist who they arrested as well and said that they can't be filming in the area of the Adani site. I think that's further evidence of the fact that the police aren't imposing these conditions to protect the public or merely just enforce the law either. They seem to be really looking out for the interests of the corporations rather than the interests of the public. And I think there's a real imbalance there that needs to be worked on and discussed with with the Queensland Police Force. Well, there's a misuse of the Bail Act because the journalists, um, presumably, they have the right to... uh, uh, to interview and to conduct their, you know, their own business of getting the news out, uh, and the the local authorities are using the Bail Act uh, in a way, you know, the Bail Act is supposed to be there to facilitate you coming to court, not to stop you from going about your your business of of being exactly. a journalist. So, can you explain or tell us about changes being currently made to? to laws to deny people democratic rights in these um, these protests that are going on up in the Bowen, near Bowen. So in Queensland, um, we've recently had announced a new bill called the Summary Offences and Other Legislation Amendment Bill, um, but its nickname is actually called the Dangerous Devices Bill. And that's because this legislation has come out of false allegations that have not been proven that uh, peaceful protesters have been quote-unquote booby-trapping traditionally peaceful look-on attachment devices. So basically this new piece of legislation is targeted at what they're calling dangerous attachment devices. Um, That includes things like sleeping dragons and dragon's dens but also monopoles and tripods. Could you just explain what those devices are? Um, just the dragons and the monopoles? Sure. So um, they're calling them sleeping dragons and dragon's dens. So sleeping dragons are uh, devices, metal tubes that you put your arms inside to lock onto different equipment. And dragon's dens are where the metal tube is inside a um, concrete barrel. And so they're also 
they're claiming that those devices have been booby-trapped with dangerous goods, um, but there's actually been no formal police allegations of that. And moreover, such an accusation does also go against centuries of peaceful protest theory and practice uh, because nonviolent direct action is exactly that. It's nonviolent, and that's probably the strictest pillar of the work that our local activists in Queensland do. So it's kind of a very worrying accusation, and it's worrying that laws are coming out of fabricated evidence as well. Yeah, and sorry to interrupt, people... but when you say dangerous, dangerous to whom? Well, they're arguing that they're dangerous to the emergency service workers who are having to remove activists safely from these devices and also arguing that they're dangerous to the public in general. So presumably when you they're confronted by um, one of these concrete barrels with the dragon device inside, they have to they come along with, I imagine, some sort of diamond saw that will cut through the the barrel and then get to the device inside so that they can release the people? Is that what they're attempting to do? Yeah, exactly. And so what they're claiming is if these devices are so-called booby-trapped with dangerous goods, then they could shatter or explode, thus causing harm to the emergency service worker and anyone else involved. You'd have to be insane, wouldn't you, too? Exactly. That's exactly it. So it's a very, very highly questionable piece of legislation. Um, and the offences that it, it basically does a couple of things. So the first thing is that it creates two new offences for using such attachment devices on transport infrastructure to block entry to places of business and also to stop plant and equipment operation. And these um, new offences have a maximum penalty of two years imprisonment. Also, which is potentially more worrying, it allows the police to give on-the-spot fines for these offences instead of having to be sentenced by a magistrate at first instance. So obviously this is creating space for more arbitrary sentencing um, and more discriminatory fines that are given out to people. Um, then the third thing, third major thing that it does is extend police search powers where they don't have a warrant to include circumstances where they suspect people have a so-called dangerous attachment device. So what's interesting about this um, expansion of search powers is that this is quite a deviation from the existing prescribed circumstances where police can conduct a warrantless search. Um, most of these circumstances include things like people having weapons, dangerous drugs or stolen property. So I think adding a peaceful lock-on device to this list uh, is a real eyebrow raising. But of course, all of this hinges on the fact that the government are calling these devices dangerous and that's the fundamental justification for adding these measures. But when that fundamental justification is based on a fallacy, I think it becomes very clear that these laws are merely a political stunt to target political um, dissenters to climate change in action. Under a monster machine 
keep your feet out of the puddles I need body heat from a friend so we cuddle To stop the shivering, to stop the shivering Won't you stop me shivering? Won't you stop me shivering? Madeline Hudson with Monster Machine, 
that's uh, obviously a locking on song and you're going to hear a few more of them coming up later. You're on the paradigm shift. It's 25 past, ni- 20, 25 past 12 and we're talking with Bree Collins who is got up with the two other women, a very interesting group it's called Action Ready and it's all about how preparing yourself for civil disobedience and their website is a very interesting read and very detailed and well put together, I might add. So if you're thinking of engaging in any protest activity, either in or around the city or further afield, make sure you go and have a look at that website. So let's go back now to Bree Collins and hear what she has to say about recent laws that the state government has introduced to prevent people from engaging in their rightful democratic rights to protest. Yesterday I saw a film of two women who had um, one of those concrete barrels, they were locked on, and the police uh, claimed that the the barrel and the, the two women were on private property. They were near a railway line on the Abbott Point Road that goes down to Abbott Point Terminal where all the, the coal is loaded. They, they already have existing laws you know, relating to private property to arrest people for trespass and to remove them. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, what do you think the objective of the government is to add to those already existing quite strong laws? All of the things that protesters do are already... Sorry, non, non-violent civil disobedient protesters do are already illegal. That's why they do it, because they've decided that this is an appropriate way to demonstrate their opposition to something that the government is doing, and it's historically proven. So there's a real question as to why we need to take extra steps to specify offences and specify police powers for these kind of acts when they're already under existing legislation. And I think... The obvious reason for that is that it's part of a broader dialogue aimed at demonising protesters and vilifying protesters and making sure that the government is basically creating retributive penalties as opposed to what the criminal justice system is supposed to do, which is have laws which deter people from doing things. Instead, it seems like an act of punishment and it seems like very specifically targeted at people who are wanting wanting to engage in their fundamental freedoms, which is protesting. So, yeah, I just think it's... Um, Pretty much the the dangerous devices tag which has been given to this legislation I think is a pretty obvious cloak to hide what is a political agenda. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've gone about doing this? What And, you know, what's your purpose in, in doing it this way by having a, a website? Something as climate activists ourselves that we did pick up on is that, of course, the law is really difficult to understand and the law on paper and what's written down as maximum penalties versus the law on practice and how police actually behave and what sentences are actually given can be very different. And so that can make it complex and hard to understand. Um, We're also big supporters of civil disobedience, but understand that getting involved in arrestable actions can be a very intimidating process for people. And what can help with that intimidation is feeling like there's a source uh, that you can go to that is very clear, tries to be neutral, 
um, and tries to just basically inform people as to their rights and uh, the laws that will affect their protest in a really user-friendly and easy-to-understand way. So I think one of the major reasons that we formed as a small organisation is realising that there needed to be a voice in the movement which wasn't necessarily um, encouraging people to get arrested because there are already powerful voices doing that, but instead was just a voice to inform and um, help improve the legal literacy of activists in general. So that's why we started with the creation of the website. And truly, when we began, we just thought we'd put the website out into the world, um, let people interact with it as they will, and kind of get on with our lives. But of course, recently, we've just been seeing so many new laws be proposed which are targeted at activists. We've seen the dialogue change and people like Peter Dutton last night say, making comments like climate protesters should be cut off from welfare and they should have mandatory jail time. And we're realising there's a need for a strong voice to be talking about these issues, helping to normalise civil disobedience as a legitimate way to interact in our democracy, but also make sure that we're not tolerating this rhetoric from the government which is impinging on people's civil rights. Um, so that was why we formed, and that's sort of our objective, to, in a more micro way, help create legal resources for activists, which are really easy to understand, downloadable, easy to use, um, and then the second thing is more proactively campaign for um, our civil liberties and freedoms. And part of what we're doing to try and do that is build a bit of a bridge between the activist community and the law community. Because the law community have powerful voices. They also have powerful skills which can be employed by uh, activists involved in civil disobedience. But they, there's also a large misunderstanding between the activist culture and the law culture, of course. They're incredibly diverse, um, different backgrounds. So what we're trying to do is sort of build a mutual understanding in that space, being law students ourselves and being climate activists, so that we can build a bit of an alliance and hopefully a really strong infrastructure of legal support as the climate crisis gets more and more intense and thus um, engagement in civil, act civil disobedient activism gets more and more intense as well. Much criticism has been levelled at Greta Thunberg uh, following her address to the United Nations last week. She has been cast as a puppet of climate activists. Could the same, uh, same, could the same criticism be mounted towards people who are in the law just become a, a device for climate activists? I think that's a really big issue. Lawyers' ethics tend to say that the lawyer should be morally neutral so that they can be an instrument or a tool of the law that can be picked up, um, argued by any moral cause that is out there in the world and thus used in our adversarial system to um, create an argument and defend the client's interest with a special duty to the court as well. But what we talk about and how we sort of justify our work to lawyers who are interested in this space that are concerned about legal ethics is that the, the claim of moral neutrality of lawyers who just, you know, get picked up by a wealthy corporation or who get picked up by government is actually a false claim. And that's because we think that because the status quo and because neutrality means that we are hurtling towards basically impending doom of humanity and all of the planet as well, that means that the status quo is violent and thus being neutral is no longer a, a solid 
claim for a moral ethic. And what's more is that even though on paper and in theory, any old person with whatever moral cause they have can pick up a lawyer and use that lawyer to argue their cause. What happens in practice, of course, because of inequality, gross inequality that we see, and a limited lack of access to justice, is that the people who can pick up the good lawyers and pay for the good lawyers are the people who have the money and have the power already. The people who can't do that are the people who often have the social causes which are aimed at change rather than keeping the status quo as it is. So already there's a massive imbalance. And so our understanding is that lawyers as well need to help rectify that imbalance. Last week after the show, I went along with some um, rainforest activists to uh, an AGM of of an Australian mining company. And we went to... Uh, this big high tower in the CBD and um, the two uh, rainforest activists that I was with they had uh, proxies to actually attend the annual general meeting of this company and to raise their concerns about how mining for copper is destroying the rainforests in Latin America and of course uh, in during the, the course of the um, of going there, we were challenged by the people who were organising the AGM. Now, they were lawyers. Um, they, were, they were the big corporate lawyers you were talking about. And, I, and I've got to say, uh, you know, we were kicked out of the building. The proxies were ignored. Um, the, the security people were far more pleasant than the actual lawyers representing <laughs> these companies. And... Um, so there's a tension within the law itself, isn't it, where you you do have lawyers who just unabashedly uh, are just guns for hire, you know, where they, ethics really doesn't enter into it at all. They'll use whatever means they have available to themselves to uh, advise their clients about ways of getting around the law. That that must present a real problem for people who, who want to be ethical in their dealings with with the law i think absolutely and i think a lot of people engaged in studies of this area of legal ethics would agree that the interest of the client has very much overtaken what is supposed to be a balancing act between the interest of the client the duty to the court and also a public a broader public interest as well and i think a lot of that is because of the corporatization of not just the legal profession, but a lot of different professions. And so it really has become in some ways a tool of money making rather than what I think it used to be, which was something which had more claim to a professionalism and a certain dignity. More more and more, I think we're seeing that um, lawyers are just being co-opted by corporations. And like you say, the lawyers are just doing absolutely whatever it takes for these corporations to get the result that they want. And a lot of that is driven by money. And a lot of that as well means that lawyers aren't actually living up to what is their fundamental duty to the court. So I think that's a massive problem in the legal profession and something which needs to be worked on in the legal education as well. Because, you know, I study law at UQ and it's a fantastic university and I've learned a lot there, but there is such a push of students towards a corporate career and there is very little direction for students 
like myself, Anna and Claire, to take a more alternative path and to work in community law. There are opportunities, but they are much fewer and you get a lot less, you get your hand held a lot less in getting there and you really do have to fight the tide a little bit to get out of the corporate stream. Uh, great. Thanks very much, Bree. Is there anything you'd like to add? I think I'd just like to add that when it comes to the bill, um, if people are concerned about this like we are and want to do something, um, please do make a submission on the bill. So public submissions are open until the 8th of October. You still have a couple of days to make one and we've made a really easy to use template and guide um, and that's posted all over Action Ready's Facebook page and also on our website, which is uh, www.actionreadyqld.com under the Take Action menu. And then, of course, the other thing you can do is talk to your friends and family. I think we've all got a lot of work to do to counter mainstream media and communicating that civil disobedience is a legitimate way of participating in our democracy and has proven historically effective at guaranteeing many of our current rights and freedoms. So... These bills are an inappropriate infringement on these rights and really are reminding Queenslanders of the Joe Bjorki-Peterson era, I think. So that's a really good talking point for your parents and family members who might not necessarily agree with climate protesters but should agree with the fact that we have fundamental protesting rights and we need to hold on to those as one of our key values in Queensland. Hate the Liberal Party with a passion deep and hearty so I voted for the Labour Party man. But the lying little weevil turned out just as bloody evil. It's clear he's out to break us if he can. So this time I was keen, I went out and voted green, and the good old coalition went and won. If you want to change the laws, then the power's mine and yours, and I think it's time to go and have some fun. Drops and lock on pipes, tripods and canoes. A smoking at the cop shop nearly always makes the news. We can safely leave the violence in the hands of the police and go and make some music in the forests and the streets. I want to make things better, so I think I'll write a letter that a junior clerk can place upon a shelf. But still the trees keep falling, I can hear the forest calling. I'll have to go and save the thing myself. Oh, banner drops and lock on pipes, tripods and canoes. A smoking at the cop shop nearly always makes the news. We can safely leave the violence in the hands of the police and go and make some music in the forests and the streets. It's very widely known that if you cycle on your own, the motorists will try to run you down. But nothing ever feels quite as free as my two wheels When a hundred bikes have taken over town Oh, banner drops and lock-on pipes, tripods and canoes A smoking at the cop shop nearly always makes the news We can safely leave the violence in the hands of the police And go and make some music in the forests and the streets if you stand up for your rights or for someone else's fight, you break the law which says you can't complain. But civil disobedience is never ever tears. It's aggravated trespass time again. Oh, banner drops and lock-on pipes, tripods and canoes. 
A smoking at the cop shop nearly always makes the news. We can safely leave the violence in the hands of the police. And go and make some music in the forests and the streets. All banner drops and lock on pipes, tripods and canoes. A smoking at the cop shop nearly always makes the news. We can safely leave the violence in the hands of the police. And go and make some music in the forests and the streets. You're on the paradigm shift with Ian. Paul Spencer, Make Some Music, another one of these Lockhart songs, which we're going to persist with. Uh, And now we're going to talk to someone who really is on the front line, Andy, who's often does this announcing here on the Paradigm Shift. He, for the past year, has been out there trying to stop the coal trains from going through and being uh, sent offshore. And uh, we're going to hear from him, and he's going to give us an interesting take on the language being used by the authorities, the lawmakers, the Premier even, in trying to characterise the protesters as being violent. So let's go to Andy now. Not that you really need much of an introduction, but could you please introduce yourself? Uh, My name is Andy Payne. I'm part of Frontline Action on Coal, hanging out up here at Camp Binby in central Queensland near the site of the Adani mine. Can you explain why people have set up the camp near Bowen there? We'll be familiar with the Adani's Carmichael mine, um, a, a huge mine which is uh, pleased to dig up, if it goes to completion, over two gigatons of coal release over four and a half million tonnes of carbon dioxide, um, dis- disrupt 28,000 hectares of land and uh, use over 10 billion litres of water a year. Uh, the environmental impacts are well known, but at the moment we have both federal and state governments trying to get this mine approved and to go ahead. And so there's a number of us that have come up here sort of on the front lines and are involved in taking direct action to try to stop this mine from happening. Clearly the government and Adani are trying to frustrate your attempts. How are they attempting to frustrate your uh, blockading? In Australia, there's been a number of campaigns of blockading for environmental reasons, and there's been techniques that have been developed in that time to enable people to do that, to make you harder to remove from the slightly stopping work. And... So things like locking your arms inside a steel pipe or inside a concrete barrel or using a bicycle D-lock around your neck to close a gate, things like that. These are techniques that um, have, have been used quite successfully and the, the Queensland government, with support of the Queensland Resources Council who were involved in drafting the legislation, um, have come up with this idea of uh, the offences involving dangerous attachment devices, uh, a.k.a. the lock-on laws, which, even though it's already illegal to stop work by locking yourself to some uh, some machinery, these would seek to add new uh, offences you could be charged with around the possession and use of lock-on devices and also give police new powers for 
uh, search and seizing of property. The government has characterised the dangerous attachment devices as being contraptions. They're there to injure the person who is doing the removal, namely the emergency services personnel. Is that true? Well, no, and this is a, a real misrepresentation and quite a sinister misrepresentation of what these devices do because fundamentally they are a non-violent form of protest and one which doesn't attempt to restrict the liberty of other people, but in fact it's yourself that you lock to one of these things and put your own safety in danger by saying that you're not going to remove yourself and, and the police then use power tools or other other techniques to get get you out of there and so there's not a history of people being injured from uh, dangerous traps inside these devices like Anastasia Palaszczuk likes to say and uh, and if that had been the case that would already be illegal you know if you were constructing some device to injure a police officer there's certainly laws against that already and it would have been reported and so this is a real attempt by the government to, to try to portray these devices as something that they're not, even to the point where in the media and even in the legislation, they're using this terminology that is just never used by the people who are actually constructing and implementing these devices. Uh, in the legislation, it describes things, what we would call a lock-on pipe, the two you know, a steel pipe welded into a 45-degree angle that you stick your arms in and put around something, which is an Australian invention and, and called the lock-on pipe. They're defined as a sleep dragon, which is just terminology nobody uses, the dragon's den. It's a really thorough attempt to misrepresent these devices and the people who use them. The removal or the disassembly of these devices, that requires specialist tools like angle grinders and saws and you're virtually putting yourself in the in the trust of the skill of the person holding on to those saws, though, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And that's I guess there's always an implied threat to yourself in doing these actions, and that's the power of them. Because it, um, whether you're in a tree sit or a tripod or a lock-on pipe, it is this kind of a trust that the person who is using that machinery is not going to do it to harm you. And so in that way, it's a very respectful form of protest it is a lot of trust because yeah it's quite it is quite dangerous a lot of these things but it's not something that puts other people in danger it's something that um that puts yourself in danger but assuming that police or workers aren't going to do something reckless then it's a, a kind of mutually respectful form of protest off air you said that you were going to write an article about this what what's the objective of the article and what are you going to cover because locking on happens deep in the forest or out in the bush or on mine sites, it, is, it isn't something that is necessarily a part of mainstream culture and mainstream awareness. And so there is this ability for the media and the government to portray it as something that it's not. And it sounds threatening because they give it these names and there's talk of power tools and heavy machinery and things like that. And so for me, as somebody who's been around environmental protests, been around direct action, and these devices are very much a part of my experience, I, I really want to kind of normalise the, the use of these devices and bust some of the myths and as well provide a bit of historical context because locking on is a great Australian political tradition. And uh, I want to go back to Muriel Matters, who was an Australian... Uh, suffragette born in South Australia which was 
one of the first places in the world to give women the vote. She moved to the UK where she was ineligible to vote and she, um, as part of the suffragette movement, she actually locked herself to the, the steel grill um, in the British House of Parliament that separated women from the proceedings. And she, she gave a speech about um, women's rights while locked on and while they had to remove this whole steel grill. And that's the kind of the birth of the lock-on, really, and the, the premise of it. And then in Brisbane, a famous other example was uh, Mel Thornton locking herself to the bar at the Regatta Hotel in the 1960s, a men-only bar. And so these are these kind of precedents. And uh, it was in Australia in the late 80s in the struggle to stop the logging of old-growth native forests in the south coast of New South Wales that the what we now call a lock-on plaque was first developed. And this is a, a device used around the world, but first developed and used in Australia um, by a guy named Mark Bletcher. And it's I think it's a, a wonderful tradition and a wonderful history, the ingenuity and the courage of people doing these kind of things. And I think this is a story that needs to be told and that it should be part of our political dialogue, not um, spurious allegations made by Queensland government about what these devices are. When Mel Thornton locked herself onto the bar at the Regatta Hotel, she was, you know, appealing for a right now that is taken for granted, that is that women should be able to go into a public bar in a hotel and socialise in the same way as men and it shouldn't be discriminated against. And so... In effect, there was an appeal for justice. Whenever you get that, there's a certain latent assumption that the masters that make the rules, in this case Adani, the big corporations that are pushing for coal mining in the Galilee, it makes a sort of an assumption that they will deliver justice, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I think the idea of lockdown, especially in this case with climate change, is um, trying to to bring attention to the the greater injustice, trying to um, say that uh, rather than worrying about, you know, the legality of stopping one machine or stopping workers from entering a site, the real moral issue here is our destruction of the climate and the, the willing destruction that comes from knowing the effects of our carbon emissions and yet continuing to dig more mines. And so it is in that way uh, in try, rather than let that business go on unimpeded, to try to stop it, you try to bring other people into the story by saying, well, are you going to um, arrest this person? Are you going to cut them off? Or are you going to stop and think about what the real moral issue is here? And so uh, I think there's an economic case as well. If you say for Adani, say, well, if you're going to try and build this mine, you're going to continually be disrupted by ordinary members of the public who don't want it. And so there's a kind of show of strength in that as well. But, but it is also an appeal to the morality of government and the businesses involved. In the past week, uh, Greta Thunberg, she's been criticised for, for not addressing the facts and being too emotional in her speech and moralistic to the world leaders of the UN Climate Action Summit. She made her plea to the UN, but she immediately became open to attack from both those leaders and also the media. Do you see the same thing happening with the climate change activists on the ground there in in, in the camp where you are? Yeah, well, I think it's a moral issue. I think the science is there. The science is clear. And nobody um, with a rational 
view is arguing with the science anymore about the effects of our coal mining and fossil fuel industries. And so I don't think that case has to be made. What has to be made by everyday people who aren't necessarily qualified scientists is a moral case that says um, the way we live needs to change because of the effects it's having on others, other species, other people, um, other nations, you know. Um, and so I think that that is the political space we need to occupy to try to convince people rather than the fact, which I think is beyond doubt now, try to convince people of the necessity for change and the, the hope of a better future that would come from changing. Greta Thunberg, just to carry this on a little bit, she resorted to oratory and rhetorical devices and even maybe some hyperbole and certainly some invective towards the UN leaders to make her point. So she dispensed with the facts and just did what you did then and say, well, they're established facts. Is there a concerted attempt happening now to deny this, her generation and yours, and forcing you to bear the, bo the burden of climate change? Well, I think, yeah, I don't know that's a, a concerted attempt. I think it's a an unwillingness to deal with the future consequences of our actions. But, um, and that's it. Scott Morrison uh, wants to pretend that it's not happening. He's literally pretending that Australia is meeting our climate obligations, which we're not, by referring to Kyoto estimates that are outdated. And um, it's this uh, an unwillingness to do what's required. And so uh, it's... It's more of a hiding away from our consequences rather than a, a deliberate attack. And, and I think uh, what is being done by the school strikers, both in Australia and around the world, is trying to make people face the real human effects of our actions and our unwillingness to deal with our actions. Thanks, Andy. Is there anything you'd like to add? Well, one thing I would like to add is that up here... Um, on the climate front lines in central Queensland. We're always open for more people to come and join us. Um, at Camp Binby, there's uh, been a lot of powerful action to stop Adani's mine from going ahead. And um, the best way to get around climate despair, as Barb said the other day while locking herself to a barrel, is to take action. And so I really believe that people working together um, using the techniques we have and the history that we have uh, can stop this mine and can make a real change on the climate emergency that we're living in. And so if I welcome people to get involved in whatever way they can. And if that means coming up to central Queensland to get in the way of some of the Danish machinery, then I'll see you here. Great. Well, that's about it for the show today. There's some good things to take away from the show. Have a look at that website that Bree mentioned earlier. That's Action Ready because it does really give a lot of hints as to how you can go about dealing with authorities who are going to bring the law against you when you engage in civil disobedience. Interesting take there by Andy about what has been happening in in the way that, that they have been characterised by the authorities as well. Uh, another good thing to bear in mind is that Jonathan Shree, the local councillor here in South Brisbane, he has been conducting a campaign to try to 
get the state government to restore some of the democratic rights that we have because really at the end of the day if they can restrict you from organising, stop you from getting on the street, stop you from taking actions to prevent climate change, then they pretty well have the game sewn up. And so that democratic right to organise is very important. Jonathan Shree is talking this week at an event organised by Dan O'Neill. It's called The Group of 17. It's advertised on the Workers' Push Telegraph site and he'll be talking about the changes in the law that Bree was talking about and how to confront those changes. Um, so, yeah, action ready and Jonathan Shree's got his own sort of uh, website where you can actually go and access how to use the Peaceful Assemblies Act that was fought for so long ago. Well, um, that's about it. Tonight I'm going to Foco Nuevo, bit of a plug, Carupa Hall, 8 o'clock start, three great band, bands, even a Swiss band tonight. Um, and so if you're interested in going out and listening to some good music, then go along to that. So I'd just like to thank both Andy and Bree for, you know, putting in the work and uh, helping me put this show together. So let's go out with the last of the uh, the lock-on songs, and that is called it's called Old Growth, and it's by a band called The Great Shame. Bye.
Yeah, we're drinking some of the sea.